0: morning guys well there are very few days in memphis that you would call really cold this is one of them congratulations on rolling out of bed and coming through the fierce weather to get here this morning you made it and i think you made it for a very important chapter in the bible In fact, chapters 1 and 2 of Job, as I have mentioned to you before, are probably some of the most common chapters uh, I refer to in my life and the lives of those around me because it's this uh, what we saw last week, this theodicy, this justification of God, this explanation of how evil fits into the picture of a good God that is so important for every one of us to keep our sanity during times of distress, times of discouragement. Uh, There's a hymn writer named William Cooper. is spelled C-O-W-P-E-R, spelled like Cowper, but it's pronounced Cooper, William Cooper, uh, back in the 18th century and uh, 19th century. And Cooper was subject to deep depressions, very deep depressions. And a lot of preachers and hymn writers are subject to deep depression. That's one thing that makes them so sensitive. Artists often are subject to depression because they feel things deeply. And it sometimes leads to the darker side of those emotions. Cooper had that problem. And on one occasion, he lived in London. On one occasion, he was so depressed, he decided he was going to end his life. He just couldn't take it anymore. So he lived in an upstairs flat in London, and he called for a cabbie, you know, a horse-drawn buggy. And cabbies in London know London like the back of their hand. They could drive it in the night, you know, without a light. They they just know the streets so well. But uh, Cooper said, take me to London Bridge, because he had every intent of jumping off. And uh, it was a very foggy night. If you've been in London on a foggy night, you know what a foggy night is. You can't see your hand right there. It's so foggy. Real thick with fog. In fact, it was so bad that even a London cabbie got lost and circled around aimlessly and came back right where they started. And Cooper was so depressed, he said, oh, forget it. <laughs> and he, he lumbered out of the cab and went back up to his flat and sat down and realized what the Lord had done. And he wrote this hymn that you tried to sing. <laughs> it goes like this without the music. God moves in a mysterious way, his wonders to perform. He plants his footsteps on the sea and rides upon the storm. Ye fearful saints, fresh courage take. The clouds ye so much dread are big with mercy and shall break in blessings on your head. That's where that hymn came from. That's the reason we need to learn it. (laughs) We'll throw you another curveball next week. We may try that one again. It's difficult to sing, but once you get it, you will never get it out of your head. It's never been out of my head ever since I learned it. Because we realize that in God's control, sovereign control over all evil, that all of that evil, all of that darkness, and all of those clouds that may depress us in the moment, in the end will lead us to glory and will make something of us that we would not have have made without it. That's the insight that we have in a Christian theodicy, that we do not understand where evil came from. Nobody does. That's the big mystery. Why would evil be here in the first place? I do not know. It makes no sense. But it is here. And having been permitted by God for reasons that we do not fully understand, we know this, that He's bringing us to a greater end. You know, we've talked in here in years past about the fourfold state of man. If you think about it, we were created in the Garden of Eden and it was was possible for us to sin. We had a choice. We could sin or not sin. Possible to sin. After we fell it was impossible not to sin. After we were redeemed, it was possible not to sin. But when we get home, it is impossible to sin. And so you'll see the fourth state is actually even better than the first state because the first state, it was possible to sin. In the fourth state, it's impossible to sin. So somehow in God's mysterious providence that has at times a dark frown upon it. As Cooper said, behind is the hidden smile of God. Because we understand that He is using evil to make us like His Son, Jesus Christ. That's no rationalization of evil. That doesn't justify evil in and of itself. It's merely an observation of a Christian person. That you are observing that God is turning evil on its head. Now, Job, in chapter 1, is severely tested. He lost all of his wealth. He's now completely broke. He lost all of his children. And he's left with his wife, <laughs> uh, which is another problem. Uh, we'll, see, we'll see. But he has been severely tested. And I remember some years ago, maybe this was 20 years ago, some of you will remember the advertisement, I've forgotten what the product was. I just remember the last line. The the woman who's about my age looks to her husband who's about my age and she says to him, And you know, when you have your health, you have just about everything. Remember that one? When you have your and when you have your health, you have just about everything. So, you know, eat these pills or you know, drink this stuff or whatever. And when I, every time I'd hear that, I'd think of Job at the end of chapter 1. Well, you know, I have my health, and so I have just about everything. He lost his entire estate and lost 10 children. I don't think you'd hear Job say, well, when you have your health, you have just about everything. He surely felt as though he had about nothing. But then we come to Job 2, and he ain't going to even have his health. And so when now the question is, when, when you don't have your health, do you have nothing? That's the big question. And if you took that advertisement and took the converse of it, I suppose if you don't have your health, you don't have anything. And we'll see if Job has anything. When finally he loses the last thing that you think you could even have on this earth, which is physical health. Let's look at it. Job chapter 2. This is Job's second test. Verses 1 through 10. On another day the angels came to present themselves before the Lord. And Satan also came with them to present himself before him. And the Lord said to Satan, Where have you come from? Satan answered the Lord, From roaming through the earth and going back and forth in it. Then the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? There is no one on earth like him. He is blameless and upright, a man who fears God and shuns evil. And he still maintains his integrity, though you incited me against him to ruin him without any reason. Skin for skin, Satan replied. A man will give all he has for his own life. But stretch out your hand and strike his flesh and bones, and he will surely curse you to your face. The Lord said to Satan, Very well then, he is in your hands, but you must spare his life. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and afflicted Job with painful sores from the soles of his feet to the top of his head. Then Job took a piece of broken pottery and scraped himself with it as he sat among the ashes. His wife said to him, Are you still holding on to your integrity? Curse God and die. He replied, You are talking like a foolish woman. Shall we accept good from God and not trouble? In all this, Job did not sin in what he said. Amazing word of God. Okay. Okay. We've got to notice in this text, especially in verses 1 through 6, that Satan sometimes has access to our bodies. Satan sometimes has access to our bodies. This is exactly contrary to the teaching of the health and wealth and prosperity gospel that's on most of the channels on TV and a lot of our churches around town. It's the exact opposite. What the health and wealth and prosperity gospel says is that if you'll trust God, He'll give you health. And God desires health for your body just like He does for your soul. Gentlemen, would you please notice the clear distinction in this text between the body and the soul? God says to Satan, Very well then, have at it on his body, but you must not touch his nephesh, his life, his soul. But God at times gives Satan leeway with your body. And we are told again by God. Here's God's description of of Job. He is blameless and upright. He fears God and he shuns evil. Do you see any anger or vengeance with God? God's angry and vengeful at times. Do you see it here with respect to his servant Job? No, he calls Job his servant and he commends him and he takes delight in him and he hands his body over to Satan. I know this doesn't make any sense. Because we usually have a worldview that says when you're good, God will reward you in this life and you'll know it, and when you're bad, he'll punish you like Santa Claus. And God is not like Santa Claus. He has a much higher purpose in what he's doing. That's what we've got to be sure we introduce into our thinking, that there is this play, this drama going on in the heavenly realms to which we are not given total access of which we do not completely know and understand, but that is all about God and not you or your body or your business or your family. There's something going on, and you're a player in this play. You're the actor in the play, and it doesn't have to do with you and your glory. It has to do with somebody else's. And until you embrace the glory of God in everything that's taking place, you will not be able to submit to reality you will not be able to have proper understanding of what's going on in your life. Sometimes Satan has access to our bodies. First of all, you see that God delights in our perseverance. God says of Job, he still maintains his integrity, though you incited me against him. Now, look at this. God talks about Job's problems as something God did. Even in the subtle language you see it here, though you incited me against him. Now, it's interesting, isn't it, that if you look at the text, it looks like God's the one who says, have you considered my servant Job? But God himself is clearly saying, I'm in charge. And of the chaos that was happening in Job's life, that was myself sovereignly allowing those things to happen. And you, Satan, incited me. Interesting terminology, but once again, you can just see it suffused through the text that God is the sovereign Lord, not only over good, but over disaster. And God takes delight in our perseverance, and that's what's going on. When you, as a believer, if you if you put your trust in Jesus Christ, and, and probably most in this room have, but if you will put your trust in Jesus Christ, what you'll find is that The the highest delight of your life and the greatest purpose and the highest good, the summum bonum of your life, is to honor God. And you see that it actually works. God actually does take delight in your feeble efforts to honor Him. He notices it and He delights in it. And that's the reason for this whole drama. is because we are honoring Him and delighting Him with our obedience in the face of suffering. If you'll look, for example, uh, leave your finger in Job 2, but turn to James chapter 5. And this is what patience is all about. This is page 2012 in your Spirit of the Reformation Study Bible, page 2012. Uh, This is the reason we're patient, because we know that God is working something out. Right now, it is His glory. Later on, it is our glory. And that's what brings patience in the Christian life. Look at how James puts it in verse 7. He commends his hearers by saying, Be patient then, brothers, until the Lord's coming. All right, stop right there. Verse 7, be patient until the Lord's coming. This is telling us something about our theodicy. The way that we look at, we, you know, we had six steps for the progress of evil in the creation until finally we conquer all evil. That's our theodicy. But notice in that last step, where we conquer all evil, when does that happen? It happens in the eternal state. So our theodicy demands eternity. It demands heaven, that is, there's a heavenly court where something's going on beyond our knowledge, and it demands an eternity for us to understand the presence of evil in this time. If we tried to understand evil without heaven and the heavenly court and God's glory, or if we tried to understand evil without eternity, you'd be in erotic mess. Let me tell you why I know. Jacob Neusner is a Jewish scholar, and he's written several books on Judaism. And I, and I recommend him if you'd like to understand Judaism a little bit better. But in uh, Neusner's, one of his recent books on Judaism, I think that may be the title of it, he describes the uh, the Judaistic Jewish classic theodicy. Let me tell you what the contemporary Jewish theodicy is. It is that God is just in this life, in the here and now, in everything he does, in the here and now. In other words, everything good is an act of justice within the scope of space and time right here and now. Every act of evil is justified in the here and now, in the Jewish mentality. Well, of course you can see why Woody Allen is a neurotic mess. Because every time something bad happens, there's a reason for it in the here and now. And I suggest to you, that's exactly what Job's friends were saying. And that is Judaism, the theodicy of Judaism today. And you say, well, how do they have the book of Job and come up with that theodicy? Well, if you look at the rabbinical comments on verse 10 in this chapter of Job 2, where we are told Job, in all that he did, he, didn't, uh, he, uh, he did not sin in what he said. Here's what the rabbis say. Yeah, but he was thinking evil. <laughs> It's not in the text, but it's in the rabbinical commentary. So Job deserved what he got because he was thinking evil. So that everything makes sense under heaven, right here, without any knowledge of what's going on in heaven. Everything makes sense here and now. That will drive you crazy. It will be a neurotic religion driven by guilt and fear. Notice we are patient which means we wait. Wait for what? He says it right here in James 7. The Lord's coming. We defer our judgment of whether evil is justified or not. We don't know in the here and now. We can't explain it in the here and now. It cannot be explained in the here and now. And if you try, you'll only... Drive yourself to insanity. We wait for the justification of evil. That's a key to the theodicy of a Christian man. And it changes the way you live life. You don't get everything resolved now. That's the reason that we can forgive centuries-old animosities. Because unlike some religions... We are not honor-bound to wreak vengeance for our family's sake in the here and the now. We wait because our king is going to bring vengeance in a way that only he could, that is truly right and truly good. And so we are patient and we can forgive. And we can forgive precisely because there's going to be a day of accountability one day And we can defer all judgment till then. Do you see the beauty of the Christian theodicy and how it leads to peace and forgiveness and grace and love? And it leads to patience. So when you're suffering, you patiently wait. Wait for what? For glory. For the Lord's coming. Read on. See how the farmer waits for the land to yield its valuable crop and how patient he is for the autumn and spring rains He's saying, hey, look, you, you think a farmer would be able to survive if he were not patient? If every day he were going out and pulling his plants up and seeing if they had roots, stick them back in, kill the plants, you're going to have to wait for the spring and the autumn rains it, to be a good farmer. Well, do you expect that cultivating a spiritual life is any easier? You're going to have to wait until everything works out and the harvest is, is taken in. You too, he says in verse 8, be patient and stand firm. Because the Lord's coming is near. I mean, it's actually going to happen. And the theodicy will work its way out. You'll see everything justified in the end. You'll you'll actually have some understanding of some very difficult things in your life in the end. You will see it. There will be a harvest. And it's near. So hang on. Verse 9, don't grumble against each other, brothers. So when you don't believe this, you grumble. Why? Why do you grumble? Because you want the Jewish theology, a theodicy. You want everything to make sense in the here and now, and you want what you deserve now. So you grumble instead of waiting. Instead of believing that God is going to work everything out, you're going to work it out. What's your time frame? Oh, three score and ten. I'm going to work it out now in three score and ten instead of waiting for the ultimate day. Don't grumble against each other, brothers, or you will be judged. The judge is standing at the door. He's saying it's very close. It's imminent. He's right there at the door. He can come at any moment. Whenever he's pleased to come, he will come. And he will vindicate us all who have trusted in him. Brothers, as an example of patience in the face of suffering, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Just think about all the prophets who spoke about things happening off in the distance and they were all persecuted for it. Instead of saying, okay, I'm going to convert from being a prophet to being a soldier. <laughs> I'm going to start pulling out my sword now, and nobody's going to take my life anymore. Those prophets continue to lay their lives now. Why? They believed in the coming judgments of God. So take the prophets. As you know, verse 11, we consider blessed those who have persevered. You have heard of, look at this, Job's perseverance, and have seen what the Lord finally brought about, as we'll see at the end of this book. The Lord is full of compassion and mercy. And so in the New Testament, you have these references to Job as a patient man. That's the reason we say patient as Job. Because he was being told at the end of things that there was a drama and there is an end. He believed it. God delights in our perseverance. That's what this is all about. That is what we are to seek to accomplish in our sufferings is His delight. And he does delight in it. Secondly, Satan is sometimes given access to our bodies because we're tougher than Satan thinks. And Satan here moves the cheese. Satan had said, well, you've got a hedge around him. You know, Let me, let me take his wealth and his family away and then he'll curse you. And that doesn't work. So the reason that Satan has access to our bodies is because he's still challenging the Lord. Because it didn't work the first time when he took your money. Or when you lost a family member, you continue to persevere in discipleship. Okay, let's go to the thing that's closest to him, skin for skin. Let's see if if he will honor you, Lord, when in every conceivable human way, it looks as though you're no longer honoring him. So you dishonor Job. You take him down, and let's see if he still lifts you up. And so sometimes Satan does have access to our bodies because, frankly, uh, he's challenged the Lord, and the Lord's taking him up on his challenge. The Lord had delight in you when you lost some money and you lost some family members, and the Lord's going to take more delight in you now that you face one of your toughest tests, even the test of appearing to to die in a very miserable way. Um, So we are tougher than Satan thinks, and he moves the cheese, and the Lord accepts the challenge. That's what we get in heaven in this in this picture. Now, I don't, you know, the Bible doesn't say that that's what's happening every time somebody suffers. I don't know. But it seems to be paradigmatic. It seems to be the basic paradigm in which we understand how bad things happen to God's people. So, we're tougher than Satan thinks. He underestimates here's what's happening. It's not that he underestimates your flesh. He underestimates the work of God in preserving you. What Satan had noticed was all your weaknesses. He's noticed all your... I mean, he doesn't know your mind or your heart. He doesn't know the invisible things. All he knows is what he sees and what he hears. And he's heard you talk, and he's seen you behave. And he's saying, hey, this is a piece of cake. (laughs) And then Jesus got a hold of you. And Satan vastly underestimated what it means to have Jesus take hold of you. He vastly underestimated what was done inside here in your heart. And then even after you became a Christian, you did some things that looked pretty questionable and uh, sometimes looked really bad and contrary to the Christian faith. And Satan says, see, uh, this person's nothing. And so he underestimated what happens in the heart. He thought he could take down Job fairly easily. He underestimated it. So that's sometimes what's behind uh, Satan having access to our bodies because the first strategies didn't work. Now, thirdly you'll notice that even though He has access to our bodies, He does not have access to our souls. God limits Satan's activity. So here's what you can be assured of. Nothing ever, ever in the least way will happen to you that is ultimately uh, not for your good. And I know some things happen. Right now in your mind, you're saying, what about my little girl that died when she was three? Or you're saying, what about this really good man in my business who lost everything and there seems to be no explanation for it? Or what about my wife that I had for so many years and I lost her? I just don't see anything good in that. I was at a gravesite. I still remember it vividly. This is years ago. And it was a, a man who was out recreating with his children And he slipped off a waterfall and fell, died, within within sight of his own children, little children. And we were at the graveside out in a beautiful uh, setting. And uh, after the graveside service had concluded, walking away from the graveside were the widow at about 40 years of age with five little ducklings behind her. She was holding her infant and four other little kids walking behind her, making their way to the limousine. I was sitting on a park bench next to the sister-in-law of the deceased. or the sister of the deceased. And she was watching that with me. We were both sitting there watching it. And she said this. She said, Sandy, I know everything is supposed to work out for the good for those who love God. But honestly, I don't see anything good about this. Neither did I. Neither do I. Today, to this day, do I see anything good in it. But, and I did not say this at the time, and everything that we believe is not to be said at the time, as we will discover from Job's friends who made massive mistakes by saying what they thought. Sometimes you just keep your mouth shut or you say, I'm sorry, which is, I think, what I said. But here's what I know. Somehow, some way, and at some time, I'm going to find out the good that God did. I have no idea what that is, but I know this. I'm going to find it out someday. That even in his severest acts with his people, there is a hidden smile, as William Cooper said. It is hidden, but it is a smile. It's not obvious, but it is love. That is the profession of faith, and those are no mere words. It is a deep conviction of those who come to know the goodness and the kindness of the Lord through the mercies of Jesus Christ. His death on the cross would make no sense to me at all if it weren't interpreted for me in the Scriptures, that that act of injustice was actually the greatest act of God's kindness in the history of the world. I wouldn't know that if the Bible didn't interpret the meaning of that event. The problem with other events, for me, is he has not interpreted all of them. So I have no idea why these acts of injustice are occurring. But one day they will be interpreted. All I know now, all I have interpreted for me is the 30,000-foot level so to speak, the macro level, where I'm told that for those who love God, everything works out for the good, Romans eight twenty eight, And I know then that God limits Satan's activity. He has given no more than God will give him uh, in order that we may be protected for eternity and blessed forevermore. That's what we find in Job 2, 1 through 6. Now, Secondly, as we look at verses 7 through 9, we find that bodily afflictions actually bring great spiritual challenges. And the reason is your bodies are connected to your souls. So we are not Stoics who simply say, you know, the body is an illusion. We're not Hindus who say that material things are an illusion. And you simply need to get your your mind out of the illusion and into the reality of the Great One. We're not Buddhists who just deny the sensation of the body and deny the physical realities of life in this world and treat all of these things as illusory. We feel them, they're real. And they're really connected to our souls. Jesus Christ has a body now. He had a body on the earth. He has a body now. And His body and His soul were connected. And the sorrows and the pains and the agonies on His body grieved His soul so that He would weep and He would anguish. Our bodies are the same. And so when our bodies are attacked by Satan under the permission of the Lord for reasons we do not fully understand, it is a spiritual challenge. First of all, from within ourselves, look at the physical discomfort of whatever this disease is, and we don't know completely what it is, but you get certain little hints. If you look, for example, back to Job chapter 7, verse 5, he says, my body is clothed with worms and scabs. My skin is broken and festering. You could look at chapter 30, verse 17. You find some further descriptions. Night pierces my bones. My gnawing pains never rest. That was before the days of analgesics and anesthesia, except for maybe a little myrrh here, there, in the other place. Uh, he says in verse 28, I go about blackened, but not by the sun. That, In other words, his whatever was happening to him discolored him uh, in his skin. Verse 30, my skin grows black and peels. My body burns with fever. Folks, this sounds really bad. And what he did was he would sit what looks like in the trash heap. He says, sat among the ashes. That was probably the refuse pile, the city dump. Because he was probably exiled. He probably was quarantined. Good heavens, look at Job. I don't want to get what he got. You know how you are when you say, well, I've got a cold. Well, don't shake my hand. You know, get Job out of here. And Job knew it. So he goes to the trash heap and he finds some broken pots, some clay pots, and he uses that to scrape his skin. And he's in pain night and day, can't sleep at night, can't enjoy himself during the day. He looks absolutely horrendous. Oh, the heights from which righteous, wealthy Job has fallen into total public humiliation and even worse than that now, not even remembered in the minds of men, totally insignificant, like a worm. From being the greatest man in the East, now to being nothing but potsherd in ashes. That's what you call a major fall. Physical discomfort, but then notice secondly, emotional unrest. And we get hints of this, of course, Uh, If you look at verse 12 in chapter 2, where we are, his friends saw him from a distance and they could hardly recognize him. They began to weep aloud and tore their robes and sprinkled dust on their heads. I mean, if someone saw you at a distance and started tearing their clothes and crying loudly and pouring dust, you'd say, ooh, must be a bad hair day. (laughs) You know, it must look really bad. Well, what if when people saw you, they just immediately dissolved into tears? It's kind of like when my third son was born prematurely. This is David, for those of you who know my family. David, now, you know, 6'6 and big strapping guy. Well, when he was born, he was so puny and ugly. I've never seen an uglier baby than David. <laughs> he was so scrawny. <clears throat> he looked like this. You know, his cheeks were swollen in, you know. He was about six or seven weeks premature. And his, the cartilage in his ears hadn't developed, and so they flopped over. <laughs> we called him Dumbo. <laughs> and he, he looked terrible. And um, and my wife, her, her mother, he lived 1,000 miles away. We were in Boston. And uh, we sent her a, a picture, not thinking. She saw it <laughs> started to cry. <laughs> and I immediately made her way to Boston. And, of course, David became very precious to her. You know, she nurtured him back to full health and so on. And so we've always kidded David. David, your baby pictures are the only ones that made your grandmother cry. <laughs> You're ugly. <laughs> and, you know, if somebody cries over your appearance, that's pretty bad. But this was really bad. Here's a man in all of his greatness who had just been completely taken down. And, you know, let's, let's strum through Job here a little bit and look at some of these verses. Uh, chapter 7, verse 1. Does not man have hard service on earth or not his days like those of a hired man, like a slave longing for the evening shadows or a hired man waiting eagerly for his wages? So I have been allotted months of futility and nights of misery have been assigned to me. When I lie down, I think, how long before I get up? The night drags on and I toss till dawn. Look at verse 14. Verse 13, when I think my bed will comfort me and my couch will ease my complaint, even then you frighten me with dreams. Here's a guy who's having nightmares and terrify me with visions. Verse 16, I despise my life. I would not live forever. Let me alone. My days have no meaning. Those of you who are subject to depression, does this not sound really familiar? Look at chapter 16. Verse 16, 16, 16, my face is red with weeping, deep shadows ring my eyes. Look at 17, 1. my spirit is broken. I'm a broken man. My days are cut short. The grave awaits me. In other words, I have no reason for living. And the next big step for me is just to crawl into that grave. Look at chapter 19, verse 20. I am nothing but skin and bones. I have escaped with only the skin of my teeth. All I've got left are my guns. Look at chapter 30, verse 15. Terrors overwhelm me. My dignity is driven away as by the wind. My safety vanishes like a cloud. In other words, I feel completely insecure. Verse 17. Night pierces my bones, my gnawing pains never rest, and so on. We saw that earlier. Look down at the bottom of the page at 27. The churning inside me never stops. Days of suffering confront me. Verse 31, my harp is tuned to mourning, and my flute to the sound of wailing. There's no music but dirges for me, he's saying. Oh, what a miserable, what a miserable existence. And you can see that in the midst of Physical suffering, our whole mentality can change. Suffering in your body will definitely affect your your emotions. We know this. We're holistic people, and so it's it, the, the, some of the deepest suffering of all is the suffering of the mind, the suffering of the emotions. Some of you know this, like William Cooper. You just want to take your life. You just want it to end. There's no pleasure you could have that is any greater in that moment than having everything end, and that commonly happens. Not commonly, but it can happen when your body is attacked. Now, notice, it's not only the physical and emotional pain, but it's the pain from third parties. B, from third parties. Verse 9, his wife said to him, you are still holding on to your integrity? Curse God and die. Well, I've been a little hard on Job's wife, and before we just leave it at that, let let me sympathize with her just a moment. If... Job has fallen from the highest heights, so has Job's wife. Especially, you know, this is probably late 2nd millennium B.C., sometime before 1000 B.C. It could even be much older than that. Some suggest it could go back almost to 1800 B.C. We don't know. But somewhere in that long millennium, the 2nd millennium B.C., probably it was written, a, a woman's place in society was established by her husband. First of all, by her father. And if he died by her brothers, and then if she were married, it would be established by her husband, and later on perhaps by her sons. That's how her role in society were established. So if Job went from the highest height of human society down to the lowest ash heap, so did she. She went down with him. Her whole life has crashed. And you know how it is. Even if your marriage is not growing great, uh, you take delight in your children, and she's lost ten children all ten of them. And she's lost all of her estate. Her husband doesn't want to live anymore. He's ready to die. looks like he's going too soon. She has nothing left whatsoever and she's completely alone. And she's a caregiver for a miserable man. So she's saying, you're holding on to your integrity. Why don't you just end it? You know, and how sometimes we give each other permission to die. You know, when I'm when I'm 85 and I'm still struggling on that last breath, why don't you just take my hand and say, "Wilson, it's all right. You can just go on." And that's good, especially good if my wife were to say to me, "It's okay, honey. Just go on." My children tell me, "Just go on." And sometimes that's all we need—just go on. Well, there's a sense in which she's saying that. She's saying more than that, but at least you can, in sympathizing with her, you can see how she's saying, "Come on, it's just—it's not worth hanging on to it anymore. Life is miserable." But then, of course, she goes on to say, "Why don't you go ahead?" and flunk the test. What is the use of this language of worship and honor that you're using toward a God who has completely obliterated your life? What is the point? Why don't you just look him in the face and dare him to take your life because what could he do to you that's any worse than what he's already done? Why don't you just curse God and die? So as I said, Job's big problem was he lost his estate, he lost his family. Ended up losing his health and he was stuck with his wife. Who becomes, maybe unwittingly to herself, she becomes an instrument of the Satan, of the adversary of Job's soul. And here's the problem with third parties. They will often unwittingly become the tool of the adversary of your soul. People who tell you that you have certain rights that God ought to treat you in a certain way or that God is going to treat you in a certain way because of the life you've lived or someone around you who is really embittered because of the difficulties in your life. And I've seen this with spouses. When something really bad is happening to someone you love, you know you can take a third-party complaint. And third-party complaints can be an adversary to your own soul you are going to have to manage the third parties, yourself. You, in the midst of all your pain and all of your emotional depletion, are going to have to be the ones who actually instruct the third parties who look like they're taking up your case. They're really not. Because your case is bound up completely in your relationship with one being in this universe. And that's the living God. And as Job says later on in this text, Though He slay me, yet will I trust Him. And you have to instruct everybody around you that that is the message of your life. And everything they bring to you and everything they say to you is to be consistent with it. So that's the reason that He says to her in verse 10, you are talking like a foolish woman because number three, we must train our souls. We have to talk to our souls so that our souls can talk to other people. (laughs) So when your body is afflicted, there are going to be deep spiritual challenges, and you've got to train your soul. You've got to talk to yourself. You've got to talk to people around you. And you're not just getting old when you talk to yourself. You're probably getting wise. Uh, The third uh, discussion question on your handouts today uh, for going deeper, I think it's the third, maybe it's the first one, is write a sermon to yourself. And I suggest you go this week after having studied Job 1 and 2, and you write that sermon, and just the file will be, the file heading in your computer will be suffering. You know, and the point is this. When I'm suffering, read the following sermon. and You write it now so that you're prepared. You, your sermon is a whole lot more important than my sermon. Your sermon to yourself. And you take the Christian theodicy. You take the story of Job. You take what's to be learned here, and you start preaching to yourself right now. That's one thing you can do is get ready for the sufferings of the body, the sufferings of your finances, the sufferings of your family, and you get that sermon drafted, I suggest you do it this week, You're know, having studied in the rich soil of Job 1 and 2. And that's exactly what Job had been doing, you can tell, from the way that he responds. He, now, you'll notice in his kindness, he doesn't say, honey, you're a fool. He says, you are talking like a foolish woman. <laughs> Isn't that nice? <laughs> Real, there's an important subtlety there. And the word for foolish, you know, we saw several words for foolish and uh, fool in uh, Proverbs that uh, Solomon uses about four different words. The word here is Nabal. You know, Nabal, Abigail's husband was a fool, uh, and the word Nabal actually means fool—someone who's foolhardy, someone who's uh, brutish, boorish, unwise. And he says, "You're talking like a boorish woman." So. We must train our souls, first of all, to recognize foolishness when we hear it. And when someone takes up, thinks they're taking up your cause at the expense of honoring God, they are talking like a foolish person. Because what is the essence of foolishness? It is not to fear God. If someone thinks they're taking your side against God, they're talking like a foolish person. Because you're not a fool. And you know that the very essence of your life is to respect and honor and revere and worship Him. So he says, you're talking like a foolish woman. Notice secondly, we must train our soul, souls to acknowledge God's prerogatives. He says, shall we accept good from God and not trouble? He's saying, are we only giving God the right to be sovereign over things that bring us comfort and pleasure, and convenience, and wealth, and happiness? Are we only giving God rights over that? Or are we treating God as He is? The sovereign Lord of the entire universe who has ordered all things for His glory, including the things in our lives. Shall we receive only from Him? Shall we restrict His sovereignty to what we're going to let Him be in charge of? Or are we going to treat him like God? That's the question Job is asking his foolish talking wife. And that is the question, wife. Who is your God? What is He like? Is He sovereign or is He not? And if He is, shall we not receive everything from His hand and learn how to lament as well as how to rejoice? And you will notice in the Psalms the hymn book of the bible that we are shown how to make a joyful noise unto the lord all ye lands and we are shown how to grieve and to sorrow before the lord psalm 22 my life is like that of a worm says david and you find cave theology in psalm 138 or 132 somewhere in there i call cave theology david's in a cave And it doesn't sound like Psalm 100. It sounds very different. Because why? David receives his exile and the loss of his son and his own failure as from the Lord, just like he does the fullness of the kingdom of Israel. He knows how to rejoice and he knows how to lament. And sometimes men only want to be disciples when it's joyful. And Job says, you're talking like a foolish person. Shall we receive good from God? And not trouble. I remember talking to a man. This is years ago. I was actually on the on the mission field. And he was a missionary. He was from Canada. And as we spent some time together, he told me about the death of his 18-year-old son who was driving home one night. He was a very fine young man driving home one night on a rainy day and went off the road and he was killed in an automobile accident. And this man said, my life, just it may as well have ended, just over. And all meaning of life just was sapped out of me. And he said, for two years, I could think of nothing else but the loss of my son. And he said, I don't know how many times I asked the Lord this one-word question, why? But it must have been about a thousand times. And he said, after two years, I was shaving one morning. He said, I'll never forget. I was shaving, and the second word came to me. Why not? He said, Sandy, I don't know how to explain this to you, but that solved the mystery for me, and it changed my life. Why not? His experience is really what Job is talking about. Shall we receive good from the Lord's hand? and not trouble. Why not? Notice thirdly, we must train our souls to guard our lips. This is our continuing testimony. In all this, Job did not sin in what he said. He rebuked his wife for what she said, and he guarded his lips for what he said. And I say to you that what you say is very important. It's not meaningless. God forgives all of our sins, including the sins of our lips. But if we are seeking to live out the drama in which He's placed us, the drama begins in our hearts. The drama continues with our lips. And everything that you say and everything that you write and all of your attitudes about your own sufferings are your script for your play that ultimately honors God. Now I'd like to close with this. How do we pass the test just like Job did? Could I summarize it? We've got three minutes. Let me summarize this in three minutes. Job obviously passed this second test. Passed the first test. The Lord giveth. The Lord taketh away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. There he passed the test. Then his health is attacked. He passes the test again. You're talking like a foolish woman. Shall we only receive good from the Lord and not trouble? And in all that he said he did not dishonor the Lord. He passed the test. How do we pass it? Three things. Number one, surrender all your rights and entitlements before the Lord. What are your rights before God? Well, okay, here's your right. Your right is to be treated justly by God. You ready to surrender your rights? Yeah, I believe you want to surrender that one. If you get treated justly, what kind of trouble are you in? A lot worse than Job. So surrender your rights, gentlemen, and surrender your entitlements. Be done with them. You have none, none that you want to keep anyway. Secondly, cling to God alone for your righteousness and your joy. Cling to Him alone. Identify with Job. Go ahead now and let go of estate and family and health. Let go of it. What do you have left? Amy Carmichael, the missionary to India in the late 19th, early 20th century wrote a poem called These Strange Ashes, which was to say that after missionary service what you're left with are strange ashes, seems to be nothing. When Elizabeth Elliot wrote her book about her experience among the Colorado Indians where she experienced these strange ashes. She wrote a book, not a poem, entitled These Strange Ashes. And here was her bottom line conclusion. It is in accepting what God has given, God gives himself. It is in accepting what God has given, that God gives Himself. Let go of your entitlements. Let go of your rights. Let go of your demands. And you end up with Him. Cling to Him alone for your righteousness, your identity for who you are, and for your satisfaction. And lastly, serve Him in every way, but especially with your lips. Give Him your lips. Give him your thoughts. Give him the honor and the glory that he alone deserves. Because you have a biblical, true theodicy that enables you to see that his glory and your glory are mutually inclusive, that he does not ultimately glorify himself at your expense. He glorifies you at His expense. And ultimately, that's the way things will work out. I close with this. I I suggest to you the book Johnny, written by Johnny Erickson, years ago, because as an 18-year-old, as you know, she broke her neck diving into the Chesapeake uh, Bay, and ever since then, she's been a quadriplegic. And look at her life. She's become God's angel to the handicapped of the world through her own struggle, which was immense. Read the little book, Johnny, or you can see the old movie, Johnny. And then read her second book, which is one of the best books on suffering I think I've ever read, called A Step Further. A step, interesting when she can't walk. A step further, and the further step is developing the practical application of the Christian theodicy. That's what she's actually doing, although she doesn't use that language. But at the end of her movie which was done very early on, so we don't know the rest of the story. We just know that she was miserable and she became a sincere Christian and began to wrestle with, with him over it. She, at the end of that movie, unless you stay for the credits at the end and listen very carefully, you'd miss it. But she's singing a hymn. She sings the hymn at the end of the movie. And it doesn't show her singing it. You just hear her voice. Let me give you the words of the first stanza of the hymn that she sings at the end of the movie about breaking her own neck and becoming quadriplegic. My Jesus, as thou wilt, O may thy will be mine. Into thy hand of love I would my all resign. Through sorrow or through joy, conduct me as thine own, and help me still to say, My Lord, thy will be done. Let us pray. Father, may your will be done in all of our hearts. Please keep us in integrity that we may always speak of your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you.